welcome to Industry Minds, the podcast that discusses the importance of talking about mental health within the creative arts. My name is Kathy Reed, and I'm Scarlett Maltman. And this week we are joined by Stephen King, not the author, which yeah. is the first thing. Um, the first thing I remember him saying in our introduction at Art Zed in first year. <laughs> Stephen is a vocal coach, a manual therapist, and a teacher trainer. He also owns and runs his own clinic, uh, King Vocal Diagnostics, and has a clinic in Covent Garden. Ooh. How are you today? I'm great. I'm great. Um, I'm, uh, we're here in my clinic, which is lovely. Uh, it's very quiet. Um, and I've just finished a day of vocal massage and working with people getting them back to health. Great, and we'll talk about that lots later. So, um, Scarlett, would you like to do the word association game? Oh, yes, I would. Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay, so the first thing that comes into your head, okay? Buttered veg. Uh, roast dinner. Oh, yum. Vocal massage. Job. Odd socks. My life. <laughs> Rush hour. Uh, commute. Musicals. A way of life. Anxiety. Or uh, a, something that comes alongside singing. <laughs> Accurate. University. Oh, I have to be careful what I say with this one. <laughs> um, university. Uh, a place where careers are forged. Oh. Oh, lovely. Should that, that should be the slogan. <laughs> a place where careers are forged. Amazing. Cool. So I know Stephen because we were in the same year at Artset. We were two once ones together in second year. Um, why did you initially want to start training in musical theatre? Well, I didn't know there was anything else to do. Um, I started dancing at the age of five and then I went to the Central Ballet School um, and I, I love, love dancing, I love ballet. Um, and uh, so when it came to it, it was either follow in my dad's footsteps, which was to be a goldsmith, uh, or do what I'd always done, but in a bit more of a serious capacity, which was musical theatre, shows, dancing, yeah. twirling about. Cool. So um, you sustained an injury during your second year in a panto job. Um, you then subsequently left Arts Ed in the February of your second year to have treatment, pursue mm-hmm. treatment. Um, what changed your mind that made you decide to not continue with your training? Okay, so, uh, wow, this is, a, this is a big question. Uh, so... What what made me decide to not continue? Uh, I, I I didn't feel in a great place. First of all, um, I haven't suffered with mental health conditions or um, anxiety, but what I do know, uh, and what when we decided that this was going to be a thing uh, for an interview, uh, I actually found my old physio notes from my knee injury. And out of 10, my stress levels were 8 out of 10 when I started the treatment, so when I just left um, training. Uh, and by the time the six months of treatment was up, I found that I had written a 1 out of 10. Uh, so I was stressed. Um, 
I knew that if things were starting to go wrong with my body now anyway, that probably things were going to keep going wrong. It was also a historic injury when I was 11. I had the same injury. Um, but I had totally forgotten about it. It was only my mum who later on went, uh, was, didn't you, uh, didn't we do physio? Like, totally forgot that whole chapter of my life. Um, yeah, so I, I, de- I decided that going back a year deferred um, was probably not what I should be doing if my stress levels were such mm-hmm. and my body I didn't feel was good enough for it. So... You said that you haven't suffered with mental health issues yeah. yourself, but did it affect you in any way to not complete your three-year degree? Wow, yeah, I mean, massively, because the thing is, is that, uh, particularly in education and as a lecturer now, the fact that I don't have a degree has meant I've had to work so m- much harder. Uh, can I swear on of this? Course yeah. I, I, swear. I nearly swore and then I thought, come on, can I swear on this? No, we, we have explicit on iTunes. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. Brilliant. Um, so as a lecturer, it's difficult to get in places to lecture and do your work because I don't have a degree. Um, having said that, it has allowed me to work in a different way which has actually driven me in some capacity uh, because I've had to make up for that. Um, And now I think I have 29 letters after my name. Wow. 29? Yeah, I think it's 29. That's more than the alphabet. I've only got one. What? ATCL. My full name is Amy Scarlett Maltman, ATCL. And and DEP for diploma. I think I'm Cathy Reed. ABRSM ATCL BAONS. Oh, <laughs> so basically, Stephen is A B C D E F G H I J K L M N O P Q R S T U V W X Y Z, and then a couple extra on the end. Have you got them all there? Yeah. Okay, go on. Let's go. It's PG Cert, Cert H E, Dip R N M T, Advanced Cert AP, Certificate of Advanced Myofascial Release. Excellent. I hope you never get asked to like state your name. <laughs> state your full name. Please state your name for the record. State my name, Stephen King, not the author, and breathe. Here we go. <laughs> I love it. So what did it feel like when you made the decision that you weren't going to return? What went through your head kind of leading up to making that decision? Um, <clears throat> it, was quite, it was quite liberating. Yeah. Uh, I really remember clearly the day when I walked in to say that I wasn't coming back. I, I had I, I had been given a week to make an ultimatum, uh, which was you can either defer and rehab or, you know, we, we call it quits. And so that was in the February. So I made the decision to defer and rehab. And then six months later came in and said, no, actually... I I just started um, doing a bit of musical direction for a local Amdram group. Um, And um, I accidentally ended up arranging a lot of their shows that year, which was lovely. It was very therapeutic and didn't require a lot of dance. So, you know, I just kind of sat there and played and it was all wonderful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No 8.30 ballet. Um, So, uh, in yeah, liberating, I guess. Uh, 
also daunting because at that point all I had and all I knew was training so yeah. so th there was a, an element of stepping into the unknown so after you decided not to return to Art said, yeah. what was the first step you took to change career paths oh uh, the first step so I began doing some uh, still voice courses uh, and I was on path to be the youngest certified master teacher of the model. However, uh, various different things meant that uh, my life took a slightly different turn and I went down the route of voice pedagogy. Um, there was a new course that had just launched, uh, which was a postgraduate certification in voice ped. And when I phoned up the course administrator, I went, so um, I've done a first year of musical theatre training. I've done these various Estill bits. Um, I've, I've MD'd for an amateur choir. Uh, I've MD'd for an Amdram group. I've done a bit of teaching as a stagecoach and that kind of thing. Mm. <laughs> and she went, darling, I think you'll be perfect. <laughs> uh, and so uh, that launched my research career. So I, I think the, the biggest step that I made was that yeah. and then undertaking what it means to not be fed a course but to discover for yourself what the information means, yeah. um, which has led me to some quite interesting uh, discoveries uh, and helps... Uh, myself and my students unwind the narrative around certain uh, pedagogical systems. Could you explain what that word means <laughs> that you just said? What pedagogical <laughs> system? Well, you know, uh, there in this country, the um, uh, there are certain methods that reign supreme uh, in training institutions and with practitioners, and a lot of very fabulous work gets done uh, and some not so fabulous work gets done and often all in the name of certain methods or models um, which can be really unhelpful uh, this I think then uh, unwinds itself as diluted education so somebody at one stage at the top of their method says this and four courses later taught by four different practitioners to a teacher who's never heard of this work before and they suddenly think they have the key and the answer to to what's going on and that's not necessarily true the world's loudest hand dryer in the background um so um so yeah so i think it's uh i think that a non-specific pedagogical approach uh you know just looking at information and anatomy and not somebody's idea of what the anatomy is for a singing lesson has been really interesting. Did that answer your question? Yes, it did. I didn't, I didn't want to lie and say that I understood what that word was. <laughs> what actually made you want to go down this path then? Was it, quite, was it quite random or were you just kind of like, did you know that you wanted to kind of do this? Like how long did it take for you to decide, yeah, I'm going to look at this? I remember when I put singing teacher as my Twitter bio. And for me, that was the day when I was like, ooh, I think this is it. I think this yeah. is what I'm doing now. Um, 
I think where where it started was that we had a particularly inspirational teacher in our second year speech and voice teacher, um, Mr. Simon Money, who uh, was a, a philosopher of voice and um, one of the most articulate men uh, and one of the most beautiful souls I, th- I think I've, I've ever met. Would you agree with that? Completely agree. He's definitely made my second year an absolute gem. Yeah, yeah. Um, and he had a way of delivering information that was so unthreatening and so digestible, but also holistic. Uh, and he, in a way, he was my hero. Um, and when I had left... He emailed me and he invited me back to do the classes, the voice classes. Um, I politely declined because I felt like that wasn't what I should be doing. Um, but he, um, it, it, in a way, that, that had a real lasting effect. Um, and I guess I want to do for my students or clients, what he did for us, which I think was just unlock us. Mm-hmm. He kind of freed us up, freedom of expression. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I had that kind of burning away in the back of my brain, kind of going, oh, well, you know, Simon and that, um, wouldn't wouldn't that be lovely to call that a job? Um, and I guess that that's that's where it kind of, happened that's where it started from it's amazing really great it's amazing so Stephen you offer myofascial release at your clinic that is a lot of what you do um how are you finding obviously you've had the clinic open for how long uh well I've been here five months full time yeah so in the last few months and since you've kind of been a teacher how are you finding that your client's mental health is affected with them having vocal problems like does does having that physical ailment that needs to be corrected affect their mental health and their ability to perform yeah okay so um part of my cohort's postgrad research uh was about looking at uh the connection between mental health and voice use particularly in drama school students and recent graduates so what what I can offer up as a kind of model that we've all so that we've, we're all on the same page is that if a student is paying fourteen grand a year to train, uh, nine grand of that, let's say they can get as a government grant or loan, <clears throat> the extra five thousand they'll need to find, on average, it costs about seven and a half grand a year to live in London, so they're having to really basically find fourteen grand, really fourteen thirteen grand. Uh, so they almost certainly have a job, a weekend job or an evening job, um, what I think we affectionately term as a muggle job. Muggle, yeah. um, <laughs> uh, so uh, what, for example, I see and try to discourage in my students appreciating that they do need to work and earn money to train, uh, as the caveat, is that they will train for eight and a half, nine hours a day, and then go and work in a bar until one or two o'clock in the morning. Mm -hmm. So not only have they vocally loaded, and by that I mean use their voice to an extreme uh, that we wouldn't otherwise 
use as human beings. Mm-hmm. So belting, crying, uh, Shakespearing, screaming, uh, creaking, frying, mm-hmm. Gilbert and Sullivaning. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that then they do that for nine hours a day and then go and have to take drink orders or whatever in a loud bar until very late in an often air-conditioned and dehydrated atmosphere, get very little sleep, and then do it all the next day and the next day, and probably don't have many weekends off, uh, let alone actually going out and enjoying themselves. (laughs) And so the, the vocal phone battery runs low and doesn't ever have time to recharge. What we also know from the research is that people's day jobs directly affect their mental health. So how you feel about your day job and how much you earn and how much job satisfaction you have has a direct correlate between mental health. Uh, What I then would add to that is that if we look at training and we know that uh, training can also have a negative effect on your mental health and then a day job where you're probably not earning as much as you would like to um, or a night job and you're vocally loading on top of training, there's going to be a mental health cycle that goes, my voice isn't good enough in the mornings for my 8.30 rep class. Uh, Then it kind of gets better throughout the day and then starts to tire, and then I go and I have to shout over the music, and then I go to bed, and then I wake up and my voice feels a bit sore, but okay, it's uh, tech, vocal tech at 9 o'clock, so here we go, you know, that's what we're going to have to do, and then... You know, and I'm drinking water, and I'm, di- but it's a self-perpetuating cycle. Yeah. Uh, so, I feel like there is a correlation between uh, certainly people who go through voice crashes and mental health issues and symptoms, uh, mental health issues which I'm not qualified to deal with, mm-hmm. uh, which can often be difficult if in a therapeutic s- setting like like this you know they come into a clinic and they expect treatment uh i can't give them talk therapy uh and so when they open up about a a vocal injury or a particularly tough show that they've done or something like that um i can't take it any further that has to just go in the notes as part of their history and we work on their physical tension which i am qualified to deal with um but no i would say there is a there is a kind of ever-growing correlate between this idea of fatigue and hating your own voice. How do you find it, obviously, presuming you, assuming you get clients who come regularly, it must be really rewarding to see their progress of someone who, like you say, might come through the door really exhausted, the tension with their voice, mental health going on par with it and then seeing the end result that must be such a rewarding thing to to see someone go through as an end as an end result yeah uh massively so emotionally so for me um i had um one client who had graduated and hadn't worked in two years um had been hating their voice had been doing um uh, superhero parties mm. in order to yeah. make money um, and shouting over kids had fucked it basically <laughs> um, so anyway they came and saw me and in five sessions 
she then had a successful audition and was booked for a job. Uh, and she couldn't believe it and you know I, I could believe it because the the transformation had been excellent uh, and um, you know a, a very uh, diligent client who went away did exercises and and really worked it through um, and uh, so I think it's interesting to see that and have an end, a tangible end product where you see somebody who comes in and their first session is them almost in tears because they hate their voice and then in five sessions they've booked a job. Mm, uh, and, and was that a, like a manual therapy client or was that a vocal coaching client or both? So that was just purely manual therapy. Oh, wow. Yeah, so I haven't actually heard them sing. Wow. Yeah. I guess it is like even being here, I, I haven't even thought about the effects mental health has on my voice. Obviously, with stress, um, when I'm having bad mental health days and I'm really, really stressed, I put on weight, so, but I can control my, my body. I know, okay, I'm really, really stressed. I need to work out more. Um, or, for example, if I'm re- really anxious, I know that, okay, I need to go and do yoga, really relax and take care of my mind. But I haven't even considered what, mental health does to the voice it's absolutely mad what what would you suggest to someone um who maybe might be in a similar situation to me not having a clue oh gosh right mental health does affect the voice what what would you say what's your expertise on that well that's a that's a question no it's interesting because i think there are three ways in i think uh i think the first one is you need to fall in love with your art again so it's really easy when you are injured or you you feel shit both in your body I mean like let's put it into a perspective of you wake up in the morning and you feel like shit and you don't want to go to the gym and so you don't go to the gym but you know deep down that going to the gym is going to make you feel better but sometimes the mind monkeys just don't let us go to the gym right I would say that uh, the same thing applies with the singing lesson. Uh, So you feel shit about yourself and you feel like you don't have a message that you can convey with any positivity uh, or with any truth. And I think that's exactly the time when you need to sing. So I think that's way one. Way two is is nourishing your artist by going and seeing shit uh, because it's easy to be inspired. There are so many... wonderful shows i'm off to see company tonight oh, yeah. I'm so jealous. <laughs> but last week i saw six which was just phenomenal phenomenal I'm just gonna leave i'm so jealous i can't continue this interview need <laughs> <laughs> to see patty so um but i had a i actually had a client book in because they saw company they haven't acted in years like 10 years saw company and wanted to get back into it from seeing company so you know if 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 you're feeling like it's it's not in the place it should be go and get inspired go and see some shit book a ticket to somewhere and it's you know we're in london it's so easy to get inspired in london i mean sometimes even just walking down the street and you hear a great busker and you just go man this this is where it's at Mm. um so i think that's the the second way of my three so the first way is put yourself in for a singing lesson and just sing your heart out uh, also, caveat to that, you do need a coach who you can trust. Yeah. Uh, and I don't just mean a coach you can trust, but somebody who you can implicitly give your voice to 
uh, with no judgment. Uh, somebody who probably can play the piano quite well. So they're happy to just sit there and play uh, and offer coaching. I think, or certainly from my experience, when you're in that situation, the last thing you need is to go to a coach, a very, very technical coach, who's going to tell you everything that's wrong with your voice. Mm. Um, Because I think that has its own implications as well. So that was the caveat to that. Uh, The third way, I think... Obviously, I am a body worker now. When I go for body work, which I do once a week, I go for a full myofascial release once a week, uh, I feel excellent afterwards. Uh, And I look forward to it um, because it is a form of therapy, right? So I. So, oh, 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 we're going to get there. We're going to get there. So. After I, after I finished that, I feel great. That I think has an impact on my mental health. That I don't have aches and pains. Um, it also has a massive impact on my voice, which is why I wanted to bring my fascial work into vocal massage, um, specifically because it's not been done before in this country. So uh, even things like just getting a massage. And even a bad massage is a good massage. Like, you know, as long as it's moving some shit around and you you feel a bit more released, you know, and then if you've got a good massage therapist, even better. I mean, that's just like out of this world, you know. Um, Go for a good massage once a month uh, and you, you feel so much better about yourself and about your body. So those are my three ways in. Good singing lesson, good body work, get inspired. Yeah. Go and see some shit, man. So on from that, um, <laughs> I want to know. I want to know. <laughs> Scarlett really wants to know. Can you explain um, what myofascial release is and how it differs from, like, vocal osteopathy and uh, physiotherapy, yeah. the kind of things that we would maybe be used to in vocal massage? Okay. <laughs> uh, so myofascial release. So fascia. Do you guys know what fascia is? Mm-hmm. So, so fascia, it, okay, let's imagine like a bit of wobbly jelly on a plate, right? You got that in your mind, yeah? Uh, and now we're going to wrap it in, <laughs> I feel like a children's TV yeah. presenter. <laughs> like I'm on Dora the Explorer. Um, I don't know any Spanish, right. So the plate of wobbly jelly, uh, we wrap it in cling film. If you pull the cling film too tight, the jelly stops wobbling, right? right. You get it? Yeah. Uh, so no matter what we do to the jelly we're not going to have an effect on much because the cling film is too tight for the jelly to move. Let's reframe that as muscle and fascia. So muscle is the jelly and the fascia is the cling film. No matter what we're doing to the muscle, the fa- if the fascia is tight and constricted, we're not going to get good movement. We're not going to get good wobble in the jelly. You get me? Yeah. Uh, so we have hundreds of muscles in our body they're all covered in fascia. So we want them to wobble. We want them to wobble. Well, muscle action compliance. So we, we, we want range of movement. We want them to move and, and comply to our, our neurological commands that we give it. So uh, we have loads of lines of fascia. You can see on the wall there. I mean, the people who are listening can't. Um, but fascia has its own anatomy. 
so fascia moves in certain ways and, and through the body. I think I read somewhere yesterday that over the course of our lifetime, our fascia moves on average 730 miles around our body, uh, which is awesome. I love stuff like that, man. That's just cool. So it's a subcutaneous layer, so it's just under the skin. Um, fascia when stimulated so put on a gentle stretch given heat or light uh, sometimes acupuncture uh, sometimes sound uh, can change its form so it stops being crystalline and tight and starts becoming more gel-like and can be manipulated and moved what we do know about fascia is that uh, if we have a blockage of fascia or a tightening or crystallization of fascia somewhere in the body, that normally correlates with chronic pain. So people who have herniated discs uh, in the lower back often have tight fascial restrictions around that. Loosening off the fascia can stop the chronic pain because the body doesn't tense there anymore because the muscle is allowed to move and change and and work as it should so when i started learning about this and i started researching it i thought why can't we put this in context of the voice uh my fascial release as well is um pain-free because it was designed and, and used to treat people in chronic pain uh, and if you do deep tissue massage or, you know, heavy trigger point therapy on somebody in chronic pain, the mitochondria go mad and um, they lock down. It gets worse. So for the treatment of chronic pain, it's excellent. Uh, my thought process behind it was, aren't all performers to some extent in some kind of state of pain? Isn't that why we perform? I don't know. I don't know. Uh, but I thought, I wonder if we can do a painless release of these of the fascia around the muscles that we use to vocalize. And singing is a whole body experience. Um, and we can work it that way that we're looking at it, that performers are in, in some kind of pain. That's why we perform. That's why we get it out there. Um, and uh, we release it. Is that too much? No. I feel like I was rambling. No, not at all. <laughs> so, um, can you explain then what you would maybe do in a session in comparison to someone who was... So you, you manually, mm -hmm. yeah, move things about. <laughs> That's very, very scientific there. <laughs> um, how How is that different? Because some people go for vocal massages and they're like, oh God, it was so painful, like really sore, but I feel great now. W why, when you give a myofascial fascial, um, release treatment, does it not hurt? It doesn't hurt because we're working on the, it's superficial, so we're working on top of the muscle. I don't really ever want to go into the muscle. I don't want to go to the jelly, if that makes sense. I want to stay on the cling film. Um, so it's very light. Uh, it's the lightest form of touch therapy. Um, and it, <laughs> it can kind of feel like nothing's happening for a while. Uh, and then a lot of things start to happen. Um, it's, it's important that it's painless because we are carrying, um, 
if we've gone through a voice crash or or something like that, we're carrying a lot of emotional tenderness anyway. Um, and from my paradigm, at least, I feel like that that added with a physical pain causes pain. Mm-hmm. Um, and looking at, you know, I'm, I'm currently doing my degree in the treatment of chronic pain. Um, and it seems to me like a, a very good idea to keep people out of pain for as long as possible. Um, so yeah, so it's light, it's very non-invasive. Um, what I will say as well is that fascia holds memory. So for example, uh, cesarean scars hold, uh, the, the physical embodiment of a child, um, but it's not until you're working on somebody whose child has died and you're working on their cesarean scar that you really realize just how much fascia holds memory. Because as soon as you start to work on that scar tissue and then, you know, they're hysterical, they're, you know, they can have all kinds of emotional releases. Um, and so that's painful enough without, you know, inflicting pain. What do you get out of your job? Well, (laughs) uh, first of all, I don't feel like it's a job. So I think that's number one. Uh, I feel it's a bit of a calling in a weird way. Not getting, not deeping it out. (laughs) You know, no, no. Um, What do I get out of my job? I think it's the feeling of absolute knackedness at the end of the day, knowing that I couldn't have done any more to help any more people than I do. Uh, I think that's really cool. I think it's quite an honour, actually. Um, I think it's something that I miss when I take time off, um, which is why I don't take time off. um, Because I feel like if you... Uh, in the least wanky sense, heal people. Uh, it, it is your prerogative that you should um, and do it as much as you can to as many people as you can um, because I think we all need a bit of healing yeah. every now and then. Yeah. And, uh, you know, coming back to Simon in second year, just that thought of me, what he gave to me, me giving to somebody else, is what I'd like to think that I get out of my job and that, you know, seeing somebody book a job after a few treatment sessions and, you know, that's life changing. That's literally changed their life. Um, and I think you can only, I uh, certainly, I, I can only kind of change the world one person at a time. Um, you know, I don't have a, I'm not a politician. I'm not a, so yeah, I guess it's just trying to, trying to change people's lives for the better, heal people. What do I get out of my job? Massive satisfaction, I think, yeah. So what mental health issues or problems come along with your job? Ooh, that's interesting. So, I mean, first and foremost, uh, I have to be a businessman uh, in order to run a clinic and in order to run a successful private practice. Um, When I set up on Harley Street, I 
was at number one Harley Street and I was playing with the big boys and all of a sudden people got very interested in what I was doing very quickly um, and everybody loves to tell everybody that they can't do certain things um, because sometimes people have the monopoly on a market uh, and sometimes people's livelihoods are at risk so I think the first big uh, kind of mental challenge for me was looking at competitors and um, the people who are out to get you. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, and, uh, not disregarding them, but see, seeing them, seeing that they're in pain and appreciating that and moving past that. Um, people, people say a lot of things in any industry um, and I think in the creative industry it is magnified. Um, that's why it's called drama school. There's always a drama. Uh, <laughs> but I think that um, the the challenge I face uh, on a weekly basis sometimes is uh, seeing people for who they are and forgiving them for what they may say or whatever and not, not rising to anything. Um, I'm making that sound bigger than it is. You know, sometimes that's just a hello and how somebody greets you, you know, and you just have to see it for how it is. Uh, So I think that. um, I'm the only singing teacher manual therapist in London. So when you're in that position, um, you are in the spotlight in terms of what the voice community doing and saying and um and so everybody loves to have an opinion on everything uh that can be quite taxing because i don't profess to know everything i know the bits that i do Uh, i know it helps people i'm on a constant journey of learning research development Uh, and um you know i think you could spend 10 lifetimes learning about the voice, about anatomy, and still not know it. And they wouldn't have been 10 lifetimes wasted uh, either. I think that's quite important to say. So, yeah, opposition, 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 opposition. I think the last thing that I face on a daily basis is that as you heal people, you also have to not take their their pain and their um their trauma into you and that was the mistake i made when i first started doing manual therapy is that i was very empathetic and was drawing a lot of the work out of my clients and into me um and i remember one day after doing a a day at harley street coming home and having a click in my jaw and my jaw has never clicked um and I, I realised I had only treated clicky jaws that day. And I just thought, wow, I've got to do something about this. Um, so anyway, I have a, a, a fabulous um, anatomy teacher who uh, is also uh, an energetic anatomist who took me through ways of grounding and, and energetic clearing and that kind of thing, um, which... I say is is like my game of pretend. I you know I I pretend to do it, and you know maybe there's something in it, maybe there isn't. But 
what I know now is that I'm not tired at the end of the day and I don't get clicky jaws after I've, you know, yeah. energetically cleared my my room. You actually just touched there on um, learning and research, uh, which was one of my next questions. Um, knowing you, I know that you have gone to many, many courses. You have 29 letters after your name. Um, you all seem to be learning and researching and wanting to find out more. Um, aside from the obvious of being able to treat your clients well, why is it so important to you that you never stop learning? Yeah, great question. Yeah, okay. Um, why is it important that I never stop learning? Uh, you know that uh, if, if somebody comes into me with something I can't fix or can't help them with and I have to refer them on, do you know how much pain that causes me? Oh uh, my God, so much pain. Uh, it um, it frustrates me. I don't like being beaten. Uh, I I like to know things. I think I think learning is fun. Uh, I hated learning at school. I was drunk for most of my A levels, um, and yeah, I didn't get it. I didn't get that kind of learning. Um, I last year spent just over eight thousand pounds on personal development courses and qualifications um which i haven't spent this year rather shamefully but uh i think that that means that i can run a clinic in covent garden that means i can help more people um i think as well um and and i mean this quite jokingly uh is that i love winning arguments man there's just something very lovely about making somebody see a way that they haven't seen before seeing it for what it is and accept a different version of truth uh what i will say is that i'm also really happy to change my version of truth as i go um which i had trouble with initially um because certain things that i learned at drama school about the voice then when you started to unpack it actually weren't true at all um so then you you kind of go between what's true and what's useful uh, and i think we're always straddling the lines i mean you know really my analogy about the um jelly and the cling film is not really what fascia is uh that's not true but it is useful right but you know fascia is three subcutaneous layers uh and, and it's an aponeurotic sheath uh around my, right exactly exactly and so the, you know it's it's anisotropic so it's like wood it's like a grain it's like and and so when you start actually unpacking anything i mean wallpaper is exciting enough if you research it if you go deep enough do you know what i mean you know there are only 17 different patterns of wallpaper possible there's a fact for you uh yeah so you know look, i i think i think that's the important thing is that i'm always searching for a truth um to my detriment sometimes because there is no such thing as nirvana is there it's right now uh and and i think you know we can always aim for something Oh, and I love aiming for things. Oh, I just like, you know, it's that. That's what I want. I want a clinic. You know, I wanted a clinic on Harley Street. Did it. Cool. Great. Helped some people. I wanted a clinic in Covent Garden. Great. Ran the two together for a while. It was crazy, but great. Now I want a clinic on the, in the Shard. And, you know, that that's what I want. Uh, but 
does that does that make me a better manual therapist? No. Is it something I'm trying to get to? Yes, but then it's about being in this moment right now, which is where I am when I'm doing therapy. When, when you know, I'm performing my fascia release, you have to be in that exact moment. Like when you're acting, you, know, you can't be thinking about having a clinic on the shard when you're acting. You know, you just fucking say your lines, don't pop them into the furniture, you're there. Um, learning, man. On that topic then, what is the future plans for your business? I hope my competitors aren't listening. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) uh, Future plans. Well, uh, the the end goal, if you were, is um, to create a uh, an ethical, sustainable. Uh, uh, well-informed and well-documented qualification for myofascial vocal release Uh, and to teach it to help spread the word Uh, teach it internationally which I've kind of started to do already um, which is really exciting Uh, I would love to um, I'd love to have PA Ooh, that's what I'd like. Uh, on a serious note, it would be lovely to train therapists uh, to then work with me in this clinic. Um, and they, my only stipulation is that they must have all been actors or performers first before they become therapists. So they get the remit. Because there's nothing worse than going for any kind of therapy and the person not not literally not being able to go... I get it. Yeah. I understand what it is you're going through. Uh, and so I think that's a really powerful paradigm if you can employ people who get it in an industry. Most sports therapists have been sportsmen. Uh, so I think it's yeah. appropriate that, you know, that vocal therapists should have been singers and actors because it's easy to look at the world through rose-tinted glasses all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is. Uh, so... So that's so that's the plan, you know. Get a qualification, uh, you know, itemized and authenticated, and then teach it. That's so exciting. Uh, so for me, on a personal level, I've seen you when you came back from Panto with your injury and how that affected you, and then you leaving. And today, we're sitting in your Covent Garden clinic, talking about the plans for the future, which sound ridiculous and I have no doubt that you're going to make them happen because you're Stephen King so you will Um, so from your perspective of having changed careers um what advice would you give to an actor who maybe has sustained an injury or isn't just it just isn't for them anymore and they're thinking I still want to be involved in some way in the performing arts but I need a career change what advice would you give to them um so I came across a business mentor, uh, somebody who I met once with, and it was quite by chance one of my hobbyist clients, uh, who's a a business coach, said, Stephen, I think you will love meeting this guy. He turned out to be some billionaire Russian oligarch with a house in South Ken, and we went there and it was all very camp and lovely, and he had a Picasso on the wall and it was amazing. And uh, 
he said he he gave me three pieces of advice, and the first one was he said, uh, Stephen, you should never spend more than twenty percent of your net worth on a yacht. Right. <laughs> the, I love that. the second piece of advice he he said was that uh, anything that you can do business wise in ten years, you can do in ten days. Uh, and the third piece of advice is he because he said to me, you know, what is it you want right now? What is it you want? And I said, God, you know. Uh, this is when the F-Type Jag had just come out, right? And I said, man, you know, I'd really like an F-Type Jag. That's what I'd like. The the V8, the 5-litre V8. And he said, all right, well, uh, my third piece of advice to you is don't have enough money to buy the Jag. Have enough knowledge and the money will come. Uh, and that was it. And then I went out of his massive South Kensington house and it was all very camp. Uh, Picasso behind me, Steinway in the hall. Um, and I'm on the tube journey home. Uh, you know, I'm there in my fucking outfit from TK Maxx thinking, man, uh, this is this is really interesting. I, am I ever going to 20% net worth on a yacht? Uh, and then I started to equate it to what I was doing. So what I realized was I there were certain things that I was willing to spend a lot of money on that didn't really matter uh and there were other things that i didn't want to spend money on that did matter um so things like buying a car which enabled me to work and travel a, a bit more and, and insure it and buy a portable keyboard and stuff like that and and then build a studio uh and then you know have a, a clinic at number one harley street and then uh, and so it was these things that then became where where I would have gone out and spent money and and been extravagant. I don't. I mean, Kathy, I I wasn't extravagant, was I? Yeah. yeah right. Okay. <laughs> um, the the second piece of advice about anything you can do in ten years, you can do in ten days, business wise. Uh, I kind of thought was a lie uh, until. I came to open Covent Garden Clinic and from the minute I decided I wanted to open this clinic to the day it opened was five days. Uh, so I, yeah, yeah. So I, uh, myself and my partner had the idea. She's a, an actress and a therapist as well. Um, we had the idea and um, over the weekend, uh, we opened on the Monday because anything that you can do in 10 years, you can do in 10 days. And I truly believe that. And so if I want to open on the Shard, re you know, if I've really wanted to do it, I think in 10 days time, I could open on the Shard. You know, if, yeah. you know, if you just, if you, if you're going to do it, you, you've got to do it, right? Um, the third piece of advice uh, about um, money versus knowledge uh, was really insightful for me because uh, what I realized was that all the people I really respected were very clever. <laughs> um, and they didn't get clever by being wealthy necessarily. Um, they, uh, you know, certainly their wealth didn't impress me, but their knowledge inspired me. And, and so, you know, when I went to him and I said, oh, I'd love this fast sports car, he was absolutely right. It's about having the, the knowledge to do it. Um, so I kind of 
saw all the practitioners who were around me and I realized they were all twice my age and I knew that I needed to catch up. So that was what I did. So, you know, if somebody feels like they're in a similar position to I, to what I was, I, I would take Dimitri's advice, you know, those, those three, three little things and they kind of keep ticking away in the back of my head. Um, and almost every decision I make now is based on those those three things. Amazing. Is that too much? No. I wish you could just see me and Scarlett just sitting here looking at Stephen like, what? I don't think I blinked through that whole... <laughs> uh, that whole yeah. Hypnotism. I was like... <laughs> yeah. Um, we have one final question for you. Yeah. And um, seeing as you haven't massively struggled with mental health issues yourself, I'm yeah. just going to slightly rephrase it. Do you think that you, or do you think that people should be able to walk into a room, be it friends, colleagues, whatever, and just let people know if they ask if they're having a bad mental health day? That is a huge question and something I have never really thought about. What I do know is that if a student comes into my studio and is having a particularly bad vocal health day they tell me if uh, a student walks into a ballet class they and are having a bad physical health day they will tell somebody what I'm not sure is if in a social setting uh, that same person would talk about their vocal health issues uh, or their physical health issues so I think it depends on the room is what I think because there are certain forums where I feel I can open up and there are certain forums where I feel I can not open up and that's not just about uh, mental health or physical health or, or, or health in general or um, what I do as a job even. Sometimes I feel like even there are some rooms where you just don't talk about things so I, th I think it depends on the forum I think it depends on the room would I like to see that change I think yes I would uh, because I would I think I would love it if a student came into me and instead of saying look I've, I'm having bad vocal health day uh, if they came in and went do you know what I'm, the mind monkeys are at, at work uh, I think I, I, I would certainly respect that and it would shape how I coach them uh, it would it would be a very different lesson. Does that answer the question? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I've got one more thing. Oh. I spent the whole right. Get ready to pitch, okay? How will myself coming to you better my mental health? If you feel better about your voice, uh, you feel better about yourself, and that's a positive cycle. Uh, we all have a message. Uh, we all have a truth. We all have something we need to say. And people who uh, suffer the most, in my experience, non-clinical, uh, do tend to feel like they don't have a message or a truth that they can share. I think that voice work, work on the voice, enables that. Uh, I think it will help your mental health if you come and see me or anybody for body work or, or, or voice work um, because it will enable you. Yeah, amazing. 
Just that was beautifully wrapped up. Lovely wrapped up. We're going to finish with another little game, Stephen. Because why not? And also because we've now got this format and we feel like we'd hate it. We have have to stick to it. We have to stick to it. So a little game of finish the sentences. Mental health is normal because... Everybody experiences it at some point in their life. My pet hate is... Uh, people who chew unnecessarily loudly, uh, particularly on the tube, particularly if it's smelly food, particularly if it's late at night and I've had a long day of healing people and all I want to do is just sit on the tube and just enjoy my tube ride home and then they are and they're eating something that's crunchy and, and, and smelly. That's my pet hate. Get it all out. I think so. <laughs> <laughs> a top tip to look after your voice is... Rest and hydrate. My favourite washing up liquid scent is... Oh my god, I really like the Method washing up liquid, but I don't know what the scent is. But it's it's called Method. I don't... Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, no, it's a purple... Uh, purple b- bottle. Is it maybe Blackberry? Maybe. Oh, it's a bit middle class, but that one. <laughs> In the future, I want... Happiness. That was my answer. (laughs) My guilty pleasure is... Keep it clean. (laughs) 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 Uh, My guilty pleasure. Uh, You know, my guilty pleasure is my cat, Queen Cleopatra of Rickmansworth, who is... uh, (laughs) Queen Cleopatra of Rickmansworth. Um, She's wonderful. Uh, she's very purry. She loves to purr. Uh, and, um, yeah, I don't know whether she's my guilty pleasure, but she is certainly something that I uh, can't wait for, Aww. you know. That's so sweet. A song I sing in the shower is... Uh, I t- I t- you know, what's really funny is I tend not to sing um, <laughs> because I either spend my whole day singing mm. with people or... Um, but I suppose... Pose. It's got to be. I'm a bass, so it's Stevie Wonder, but definitely Can the octave below. Unfortunately, not. <laughs> Stephen, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been very insightful to you talk and best of luck for the future for everything i can't wait to see where it takes you let me know if you get a discount off in the shard in five years time or five days (laughs) (laughs) if you would like to be featured on the podcast or you just have some thoughts that you would like to share with us please give us an email on industrymindsuk at gmail.com we are on social media you can find us on twitter and instagram at at industrymindsuk we are on apple podcasts please subscribe and give us a wee cheeky five stars if you like what you hear we're also on soundcloud for you android users thank you so much for listening and we'll see you very very soon bye bye goodbye